2: Hi there, everyone. This is Zach Young, producer of Deconstructed. Ryan Grimm is off for the week, and we're turning the show over today to Intercept associate editor Maya Hibbert. Hi, Maya. Hi, Zach. Last month, a man named David Castillo, who is an executive at a company called DESA, went on trial in Honduras. A senior official at a construction company in Honduras has been arrested on suspicion of ordering the murder of an environmental campaigner. The trial was in connection with the murder of Berta Cáceres. Maya, a lot of people who listen to this show will already know that name, but many won't. Who was Berta Cáceres?
3: She was a member of the Lenca community, which is an indigenous people from the southern part of the country. They live along the Gualcaque River, which is sacred to their people. And she was also the founder of a group called the Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations of Honduras, or COPING. And she was the recipient of a very prestigious environmental
0: environmental prize, which
3: is kind of like the Nobel for environmental activism. And then in March 2016, she was murdered in her own home by armed intruders. There's
4: rioting in the streets of Honduras today over the murder of an environmentalist and human rights champion.
0: It was one of the most high-profile murders of an environmental activist in recent memory. The death of 44-year-old Berta Cáceres sparked international condemnation.
2: And do we know who killed her or why?
3: It wasn't hard to guess the kind of broad reasons why somebody in Honduras would want to have Berta Cáceres killed. Her activism often created problems for business interests and for members of the ruling class.
1: Cáceres complained of death threats from police and the army in the past. Her daughter says her mother
3: was killed because she refused to exploit natural resources at the expense of native people. In the final years of her life, she was fighting an effort to construct a dam on the Gualcarque River by a company called Desarrollos Energéticos Sociedad Anónima, or DESA. Uh, that's the company you just mentioned a moment ago. The dam had wealthy international investors, and the government was determined to push ahead. And they wanted to construct a dam over this river where the Lenka people have have a lot of territories and um, you know, use the water. It would have cut off the water supply to the Lenka community and the land they live off. So for background on this case, in 2005, there was a presidential election in Honduras.
5: Honduras,
3: The winner was a businessman named Manuel Zelaya, um, sometimes known by his nickname Mel. Zelaya was elected on a liberal platform, but moved to the left during his presidency. While he was president, he prioritized Honduras' agricultural production to reduce reliance on imports and joined a Venezuelan-led regional trade group called the Bolivarian Alternative for the Americas. And most crucially, he sought this constitutional change which would have facilitated the redistribution of wealth from the hands of 10 ruling families who at the time were said to control 90% of all Honduran capital. And it was that desire to alter the Constitution that finally convinced the Honduran elite Zelaya had to go.
0: Business elites opposed reform and feared Zelaya was orchestrating an illegal power grab to extend his presidency and set up a socialist regime.
3: He was deposed in a military coup in 2009.
0: President Zelaya was forced
4: out of Honduras in his pajamas in a military coup back on June 28th.
3: 10,000 people marching in support of the ousted leader. And then a right wing government was installed to replace him. Roberto Micheletti como presidente constitucional de la Republica. That government, the coup regime was not internationally recognized.
5: <laughs>
3: but in the elections that have followed, power has continued to, to be concentrated on the right wing in Honduras. And the new leadership in the country has placed a strong emphasis on attracting investment
0: de and kind of
3: greasing the wheels of local development efforts. They even rolled out a new slogan
0: Honduras is open for business.
3: So, pretty soon, coping and the anti dam construction activism ended up in the government sites. And so, of course, did Berta Cáceres.
2: And so beyond the implications of her murder for Honduras and what it means about violence and corruption in that country, why should this story be of interest here in the U.S.?
3: There are a couple of reasons um, why U.S. listeners should care about this murder. One is that while Barack Obama's administration publicly condemned the overthrow of Zelaya.
4: The coup uh, was, Not legal. President Zelaya remains the president of Honduras, the democratically elected president there.
3: They waffled on doing anything more committal than that. Obama and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton publicly described the events as a coup, but the State Department never actually labeled it as such, which would have required them to cut off aid to Honduras. Beyond that, the Honduran military has deep ties to the United States. Later reporting by The Intercept revealed that while the U.S. ambassador to Honduras scrambled to contain the coup, there were anti zelaya factions within the embassy and also in Washington. And even publicly, especially among the Republicans in Capitol Hill, there was active opposition to Zelaya and support for the replacement of his government. Here's Republican Congressman Connie Mack speaking at a hearing in 2009.
4: This was not a military coup. If there's any fault here, it is on Mr. Zelaya. He is the one that at every turn
2: turned his back on the people of Honduras and his own constitution, which
4: he pledged to uphold.
3: The result was, quote, an American government with no single policy, but rather of bloated bureaucracies acting on competing interests. And as the reporting showed, the night before the coup, Honduran and U.S. military leaders attended a party together at a U.S. defense leader's house. The day before that, a Pentagon communication acknowledged that Zelaya could be forced to resign because he lacked the support of his own military. David Castillo, the guy who's on trial as we speak, Castillo had been part of the military since 2006 when he started working as a military intelligence officer for the Honduran Armed Forces. Two years before that, he graduated from the foreign cadet program at West Point. The general consensus is that the coup made existing conditions of inequality and violence significantly worse. The government, the military and the wealthiest of the wealthy work pretty much in step with one another, which makes it materially difficult and dangerous to be an activist, a land defender or in many cases just a regular person. This drives people to flee Honduras and migrate north among the waves of travelers from so-called Northern Triangle countries that we hear so much about in mainstream news. This consolidation of power leads to legal impunity for the very rich, which is why David Castillo's trial has been recognized as kind of a shock and triumph among activists. Led away in handcuffs one of the men believed to have overseen a plot to kill Berta Cáceres. In Honduras, the courts can essentially run out the clock on pre-trial detention, and if they had held Castillo in jail for more than three years without a trial, they could have just let him out and abandoned his case. But even if there is a guilty verdict, which, as we're speaking, we don't know if there will be, that won't resolve the rampant corruption. Berta's case is just one example of how the military and elites treat environmental and indigenous activists as a disposable obstacle to their development. Cases
0: like these where activists are targeted and killed are quite common in Honduras. Human rights groups note the country has one of the highest rates of murders of environmental activists anywhere in the world.
2: Maya, you spoke on the phone recently with Berta Zuniga Cáceres, who is the daughter of Berta Casares, the activist.
0: Bueno, decirles que, este la defensa del señor David Castillo ha venido and she's
2: become a, a leadership figure in copine since her mother's death. How does she feel about the way that David Castillo's trial has been conducted so far?
3: I think she seemed cautiously optimistic about the fact that there has been a trial at all, but she has not been very impressed with the proceedings.
0: The family of Berta Cáceres says the investigation has been full of irregularities and say they worry the trial won't produce a just outcome.
3: So when the trial started in April and it was supposed to wrap up in just a couple of weeks, Berta's younger sister, Laura, who was attending to represent the victims and uh, kind of serve as a witness, was barred from entering the courtroom. And the victims eventually ended up convincing the court to allow her to enter and she's been there keeping track of the proceedings every day so there's somebody on coping and on the family's side always watching but beyond that there was a pause of about a week shortly after the trial began because castillo's lawyers objected to some of the proceedings and argued that the court was not qualified to rule on the case so overall there have been kind of some hiccups and the whole thing is taking longer than it was expected to
2: and one concern that uh, some observers have voiced is that this case will end up being too narrowly focused and that david castillo will end up being just a fall guy you know someone that the honduran government can heap the blame on and then move on and not have to seriously shine any light on the structures of corruption that surround and enable someone like him and are ultimately what makes someone in his position, I'm not saying he's guilty, that's still being adjudicated in court, but someone like him think that they can order the murder of a peaceful activist with impunity. Does that seem to be
3: what's happening? I think that's a very real concern, and it's something that Bertha alluded to when we spoke.
0: Eh, nos pueda abrir nuevas investigaciones a otras personas que estaban dentro de la junta directiva de la empresa
3: y when when we talked, la... the a piece of evidence had just been presented, uh, which were text messages from Daniel Atala, who is the CFO of DESA and uh, a member of this very powerful, extremely wealthy family, uh, the Atala Zabla family. And in these text messages, Danielle had used. Extremely racist language um, in which he expressed his hatred for the Lenca people and an attitude that they were truly disposable. He also alluded to ways he delegated responsibilities for his father and for people who Berta described as functionaries of the state. Essentially, Castillo's trial both shows that these folks have such deep ties to to power in Honduras that they have long viewed themselves as somewhat untouchable. And I think there is validity to the concern that one high-profile high trial will result in one conviction, and then people will kind of look away the next time it's somebody who's less famous who becomes a victim. And Part of the frustration has to do with the fact that no one from the Atala Zabla family, who make up a lot of DESA's board of directors, has been charged. Members of the family are also owners of Banco Ficosa, one of the three major banks in the country. They had only recently acquired a significant stake in DESA when the company started pursuing the dam project. And... At the time, David Castillo, who was then still a member of the Honduran Armed Forces, had also been employed by the National Electric Energy Company, Honduras's electric utility, while Desa sought licensing for the dam. Castillo has also been charged in a case known as fraud on the Gualcarque, which implicated a total of 16 officials from the energy utility, the municipal government, and the private sector. It hasn't resulted in any convictions, and in December... Ten of those 16 cases were dismissed, and the other six are still awaiting trial. At the same time, David Castillo's trial is not the first in the Cáceres murder case. A couple of years ago, there were actually eight other men who were sentenced for their roles in plotting and carrying out the crime. So it is indicative of the fact that this is a broad network that has been investigated for, for quite a long time.
2: And how does she feel about the situation that the Lenka are facing? It's been 5 years since her mother was murdered. Does it seem like they are being recognized more by the government?
3: No, she she was fairly uh pessimistic about about the the treatment of the Lenka people. She said essentially that if it hasn't held steady, it has gotten worse. That the government and um Big business interests, multilateral banks, both nationally in Honduras and with international cooperation, have continued to violate people's human rights to pursue projects against the will of the local people. But she was somewhat optimistic about the level of exposure that this case brought and thanked people for for their solidarity and hopes that the More attention that is given to the Caceres trial and to Coping's work, Berta, the daughter Berta, is now the director of Coping, that they will kind of continue to make progress.
0: Yeah.
5: Who's yeah.
0: Prosecutors believe that by uncovering who gave the order to kill Berta Caceres, a precedent could be set that might help protect other environmental activists from suffering her same fate.
3: Next, we're going to speak with Kiara Eisner and Danielle Mackey, who reported on Berta's murder together for The Intercept in 2019. Kiara is now a reporter at The State, a newspaper in South Carolina. And she recently produced a great episode of the NPR podcast Radio Ambulante about Berta's killing and the Aguazarca project, the dam that she was protesting. Danielle is a journalist at The New Yorker and last year reported for Univision on the ties between a U.S. steel producer and a mine in Honduras accused of persecuting local leaders and land defenders. Chiara, Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Maya.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
3: Both of you have reported on the murder of Berta Cáceres for The Intercept and for other outlets. Uh, In 2019, you co-wrote a piece about the plot to kill Berta and the construction of the Aguazarca Dam. Just to start off, um, could you give us a little bit of background about the Aguasarca Dam project, uh, which Berta was fighting to stop when she was assassinated? Uh, yeah, the dam
5: was slated to be built by a Honduran company called DESA. That company is controlled by a family in Honduras that's quite powerful called the Atala Sabla family. It's a private development project. It. it was not a public dam, right? It was it was going to be held by private funds, which makes it a particular type of project as far as these go.
1: It was planned to be along the Rio Gualcarque and activists that were part of the group Copin, which is the group that Berta Cáceres founded, co-founded, they led a grassroots campaign against this dam because they believed that the authorized consent of the indigenous people had not been obtained. And in 2013, they successfully managed to basically kick out the largest builder of dams in the world from investing in the project, which was the Chinese company Sino Hydro. But many other international financiers stayed. Berta, before she was murdered, sent letters to these different international organizations insisting that the members of DESA were assassins, that they had taken advantage of their contacts with paramilitary groups and politicians to threaten and to kill members of Copin, and that they had presented charges against her and other grassroots members in their fight. So that was all leading up to 2016.
3: Yeah. And what were the involvement? So you mentioned the Sino-Hydro group. Um, Could you speak a little bit more about the role of international business and um, the World Bank and U.S. interests in the dam project? International funding
5: is always key to these sorts of projects. That's what makes them possible. And Mm -hmm. one reason why both large lending banks and institutions like the World Bank or inter-American, you know, the Inter-American Development Bank, um, regional banks. The reason they have these stipulations around these projects, around making sure that they won't damage the environment, making sure that they are in accordance with local community wishes, is because the point is that this money not go to something that is harmful. The the whole in theory, idea behind these sorts of extractivist projects is that they bring development to communities. But so often what we find, as we found in Berta's case and in Honduras on a regular basis, systemic basis, is that these stipulations are overridden through oftentimes corrupt acts, direct access that private capital in Honduras has to political leaders in Honduras and their capacity to use state security forces, oftentimes, well, the police or the military, as their own private security guards or to intimidate protesters against what this private capital wishes to do to pad its bottom line. And that's something important that Kira and I found in our investigation for The Intercept in which we used evidence that was produced in the course of the first trial of the people accused of murdering Bertha Cáceres.
1: We know that the Central American Bank of Economic Integration lent this uh, $24.4 million to build the Aguasarca Bank. We know that Jose Eduardo was on the board of directors of that bank, and he is connected to this powerful family that Danielle was mentioning. We also know that the FMO, which is a bank that's funded by the Dutch government, they were involved until Burtekassers was murdered, and they were a recipient of one of the letters that she personally sent to them, informing them of the threats that she had received.
3: I understand that the military um, was protecting the dam from protesters and that the military and the police are were pretty heavily invested in this project. I understand that in July 2013, they shot and killed a man named Tomas Garcia. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about who he was and how the fallout from his death played out. The reason the state
5: security, military, and the police are invested in these projects is because they work on behalf of private capital. They rarely have any direct interest in these sorts of projects, but they do the bidding of the folks who hold the reins in much of Honduras, as Kara mentioned earlier, which is Mm -hmm. powerful businessmen.
1: Yes. And I'm happy to talk about what happened in July. I would just back up a little first, because I'm going to use some of the texts that we took advantage of in our reporting to kind of explain what happened that day, because I think they illustrate quite well what was going on. And so these messages that we used in our reporting for The Intercept were obtained by the Honduran Public Prosecutor's Office in their trying of the hitman who would later be charged and sentenced with the murder of Berta Caceres. That call log wasn't only looked at by us. um, It was first examined by an independent expert. And it showed, and her analysis of those chats showed, that the assassins had communicated through a compartmentalized chain that reached the highest ranks of leadership of the company. And so we looked at those messages to show how they demonstrated a plot to kill Caceres. And they also demonstrated DESA's involvement in other unethical activities like bribing journalists covering the story, spying on activists and diplomatic meetings, and keeping tabs on Berta's location. And so we can see that on July 15th, 2013. So that very day, one of the leaders, Atala Midens, sent a message to Castillo, who at the time was the president of DESA. And he texted him in Spanish, the military killed an Indio. And he said, it looks like another of them is dead. In response to that, Castillo said, pay the reporter from HCH, which is a Honduran news station. And he said how much they would pay him. He went as far as that. He said, a thousand lempiras for last week. And right now we can give him another a thousand. So that amounts to about a hundred US dollars. And we know that when that television program ran the story, the broadcast was slanted in Dessa's favor. They mentioned that the child of someone working on the dam had been killed and indicated that members of Copin were responsible. However, that has been widely disputed, and it really is a talking point of the company. And so we don't have a 100% clear understanding of, of what happened that day. But we do know that Copin was likely not responsible. Everything indicates that they were not responsible. But the media was led to believe that they were involved in this killing. And what we saw was really a campaign to turn public favor against Copin and against Berta Caceres and make them seem like the enemy here. It's not something that only happened in this situation. It's also happened with other journalists who reported on this story. It's a technique that's used in Honduras and in other parts of Central America. So Nina I'm again, I'm not sure whether I'm pronouncing her last name right, Mm -hmm. but Nina's been reporting on this story for The Guardian, and she was indicated as a terrorist, in a letter that was put out, supposedly by this group of farm workers. The group of farm workers was not real. And this is a strategy that's just used consistently, trying to turn public opinion against activists, against journalists, trying to make them seem like the ones who are terrorizing, when actually the evidence shows that the paramilitary groups. In this case, the ones defending the dams were the ones initiating the violence. And that in this case, uh, Copin and Berta Cáceres were, and to my knowledge, always have been uh, peaceful protesters.
5: I think the other thing that I would say is that the idea sold through corruption in the press and even through the way that these people who protest these sorts of projects are taken seriously or not, by international funding institutions, and by media is all part of a pretty white supremacist idea of who they are, that they are anti-modernity, that they aren't interested in progress, that they are backwards. There's a lot of um, racist and classist ideas deeply embedded in the now generations of protest that campesinos and indigenous communities like the Lenca, who Berta Cáceres was a part of, embedded in in not taking their protests seriously. And we are now talking about the problems inherent in this idea of development, this very neoliberal, wealth-concentrating, plugging Honduras into the world economy-centric idea of development. We're talking about the problems inherent in it because it has been elevated to a level of proof according to that Systems language, right? Like now we can point to the punitive justice system has carried out law enforcement investigations which have extracted data from cell phones. But from the time that the idea, for instance, of hydroelectric dams that are owned by private capital, that idea of that equaling development, from the time it was introduced, Campesino and indigenous communities in Honduras and in surrounding countries in Central America have protested that and have said that is not good for people. That is good for companies, for certain families. We reject that. And now Berta Cáceres has been elevated to this level in which it's hard to write off her vision and her critique, which is, it's good that this is being taken seriously, but it's far too late.
3: Right. Kiara, you also recently reported for an episode of Radio Ambulante that detailed the case and some of the environmental claims that Sino Hydro and Dessa were making, which also drew heavily on the work of a group called Gaipe. And in the episode, there was an interview with a lawyer named Liliano Uribe, um, who had investigated the Cáceres killing. So could you just tell us briefly uh, what, what Gaipe is and what they found?
1: Yeah, Gaipe was an an international team that investigated the murder. They had lawyers that were student lawyers that were working out of University of California Berkeley and basically they went through the texts as we did and they interviewed experts on the ground. They talked to ethical experts, I believe, and basically compiled a report with their conclusions and I would say that they concluded this was a group that had been involved in corruption
3: and and how does that relate to David Castillo the man who is currently on trial for ordering Bertha's murder
1: there was a report that was published in 2019 by various human rights groups in Guatemala and the United States I talked to one of the women who Helped write that report and helped research it. She told me it took six to eight months for them to complete, and it's extremely well supported. Almost half of the document, the 44 page document or so, is footnotes and citations. And I can tell you that when I talked to that author, she told me that her conclusion from her time spent looking into Castillo's time spent in government and in the military was that. Quote, this is a person that has been taking advantage of everything he could to advance his own economic interests, end quote. They found that he had an important role in eight different companies, and in each one, the investigators found cause for concern, she told me. And basically, Castillo's time in the military and in the government progressed naturally from his experience. In the United States, actually, when he attended West Point from 2000 to 2004. And when he attended, there was an obligation at the end of that to then serve in his home country's military. And so in 2006, he worked for the Honduran Armed Forces. He was a military intelligence second lieutenant. From there, he transitioned to working with the ENEE, which is the electronic agency of Honduras, and there he negotiated hydroelectric projects. One of them was with the Brazilian company Audibrecht, which was at the center of one of the largest massive corruption scandals in Latin America. The company was charged by the U.S. Department of Justice for making approximately $439 million in corrupt payments. And Castillo was there, visited Brazil on behalf of the Honduran government. While Castillo was working for that agency, that was when DESA was founded. And on March 4th, 2019... The Prosecutor's Unit Against the Impunity of Corruption, a unit of the Public Prosecutor's Office, actually charged Castillo with fraud, use of false documents, charges related to the authorization of contracts and permits for DESA to build and manage the hydroelectric dam, uh, the Agua Zarca dam. And they said, it is clear that the founding partners were only frontmen who were used to establish the company, but Castillo had real and material control of the company at the same time that he was an official uh, member of the government. Their report showed that Castillo was taking double government salaries, that he had started a company that was selling the government different office supplies while working for the government, which he wasn't supposed to be doing that. And he he was made to pay the government back for that. So all in all, I think that report really helped us understand that this was uh, this was not somebody who is a victim as his defense is really trying to paint him this is somebody who had a history of corruption from the very start of his time working for the government and working for the military
3: you mentioned his work with the US military before he he went back to serve in the Honduran military even before the U.S. backed coup in 2009, which deposed uh, then President Manuel Zelaya, and since then the U.S. military, I understand, has been supporting the the Honduran military. So, briefly, could you just discuss how the coup changed things in terms of the violent conditions and environmental abuses, and kind of the uh, the permissiveness toward business in in Honduras,
1: one thing that I remember from speaking to Berta Caceres' daughters in Honduras, I was in I was in their offices in Copín, just a couple of paces away from where Berta worked before she died, and I remember clearly that one of her daughters just kept repeating to me mm-hmm. that after the coup, there was a new slogan. Um, that was Honduras is open for business. And it, it was really important for her that, that I realized that and that that had perceptively changed how the government looked at the natural resources as a opportunity for new business and how they really felt like that excluded them from the conversation and led to what happened to their mother. I mean,
5: what the coup ushered into Honduras was not the beginning of corruption or the beginning of, you know, necessarily even the drug trade. The the coup just concentrated to an enormous amount the power of people who were involved in corruption and a lot of economic and physical violence and including the drug trade, it opened the doors of the government to what looks like based on what we see coming out of investigations, both by independent bodies and local Honduran authorities and the Southern District of New York, the federal court here in the United States, just a a really well-oiled corruption machine that's in charge of all levels of, of the Honduran government. You know, I think that connects to a takeaway of that I would hope readers would have of the investigation that Kiara and I did. First of all, there is evidence to suggest that what the Casares family has been saying since the murder is true, which is that the murder of Bertha Casares was the last act in a long list of years of corrupt and other types of, of you know, economic and, and physical violence acts perpetrated against peoples like the Lenka, individuals like Bertha Cáceres. And it would be a shame if the understanding of everything that has come out of the exhaustive investigation into this murder, if the takeaway is that this company or these individuals or this family is particularly bad and was engaged in particularly illegal or immoral things, because that's not the case. They're, in fact, representative of the really concerning and very deep-rooted problems of corruption and institutional violence that make life uh, difficult, if not impossible, for a great many Hondurans. And that goes to the very top. And we know that in large part because of proclamations that are coming out of, as I mentioned, the federal court in New York here, you know, not far from where I'm sitting right now.
1: This is not a rarity in any way, shape or form. This case is not a rarity. It is not rare that there was corruption from the very beginning in the forming of this company um, to the end. Um, It's not rare that hitmen were paid to kill an indigenous person. Honduras is one of the countries where more indigenous people are killed in the world. It's not rare that a woman was murdered, even a famous woman. It's not rare that the government was slow to respond. It's 2021 and Berta Cáceres was killed in 2016, and we are only now um, seeing the trial of just one person who has been accused of masterminding her murder. And it's not rare that this country received, continued to receive government aid from the U.S. What's rare in this situation is that the Honduran Supreme Court took the time to actually investigate this case. Most borders in Honduras are not investigated. The rare aspect of this is the international attention that's been paid because of Berta as celebrity. And it's rare that we get to see this kind of window into how you know, despite all of the evidence being laid bare already, and multiple U.S. senators voicing their dissent with what's happening, but yet the, the U.S. government continues to finance the Honduran government and the Honduran military because it jives well with their interests. And what's
5: obvious in the end is that this is not good for people. It is not making life a dignified life possible for most hondurans and it prompts things like flight from honduras to seek survival in other countries like the US and and it's it's a cycle that will continue until people who have power in places like the United States and in places like Honduras recognize that cracking down on crime by the poor while shaking hands with the wealthy who are carrying out what you know we we now know a bit more about that doesn't make for a dignified life for people.
3: Right. I was I was about to ask how these conditions drive migration patterns and, and contribute to the kind of border panic that the U.S. media engages in without really contextualizing the situation in, in the countries people are leaving.
1: Yeah, what really comes to mind um, is what... This woman who worked on that report about Castillo told me when I was speaking with her last year, she mentioned that at a massive scale, people in Honduras are feeling impotent against the unavoidable corrupt structures at every level of power in Honduras and how that feeling of impotence motivates the constant violence in which people live in in Honduras and which we see a little bit in the story of Berta Cáceres. Because of this, this deep-seated corruption that we see in Castillo and in his trajectory through the armed forces and through the government, and then because of this constant violence that we see in what happened to Berta, that she was murdered in her own apartment after just organizing a grassroots protest. That's all. That's all. Really, Berta was "quote unquote" guilty of. She was. She was peacefully protesting, and for that, she was killed. Regardless of her celebrity, regardless of the fact that she had won an international award, she was still seen as dispensable. It was still possible to kill her. And you can imagine if it's possible to kill someone like Berta Caceres, who has won an international award for her efforts, how easy it is to kill just an average person who doesn't have international celebrity. This author of the report really highlighted that this violence paired together with this feeling of impotence against corruption, that's the reason why there are so many people trying to leave Honduras, because it's impossible to just simply have a peaceful life, I think many people feel, to have what many of us take for granted in the United States just the ability to have a job and mind your own business. I think she was pointing out that a lot of people feel either compelled to participate in those corrupt structures and become part of the problem or become a victim of them. And if you don't want to do either, then I think a lot of people feel like their only option is to leave.
3: Yeah, that, that makes sense. This was great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Maya. Thank you, Maya. That was Danielle Mackey and Kiara Eisner. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Maya Hibbert, associate editor for The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week.